We are no longer in the book of Acts. We are now in 1 Peter. So you can flip over there. Uh, the, I'm not, the title of my sermon, I'm still, we're still, this was like a last minute uh, throw together by Jordan because I, I didn't decide what book I was going to be in until the last minute. Uh, but uh, Elect Exiles is the name of the sermon today. So that worked out really well. He, he picked the right title. Um, I thought about using selected sojourners or nominated nomads, uh, picked pilgrims kind of had a ring to it, and maybe found foreigners, but, but I decided to go with what's in the text and go with elect exiles, so that's where we're at. Uh, before I, we get started today, I just want to encourage you about something that the pastors have been talking about in this last week, and I, I had a conversation with a, with a brother that I talked to this week on the phone too about the same thing, and just how important it is right now for the church to be thinking and acting differently than we have been. And what do I mean by that? Well, before COVID, a lot of us in the church, uh, all through the week, we were together. We were doing things. Uh, there was just kind of like what you see in Acts chapter 2 took place in the church. That was just the norm. We got together. We, we broke bread together. We prayed together. We encouraged each other. We used our spiritual gifts to help each other. And, and I know that still does happen, but it's, it's kind of gotten to where it's happening less and less because of this. And so you know, Sunday used to always be kind of the cherry on top of, a, of a, a week full of good fellowship and ministry. And now it's kind of like the whole thing. And, and, and I know that's not true of everybody, but I know it's true for a lot of us. And so for some people now, uh, not only is the whole week thing gone, but they're, they're not even here on Sundays now. And, and you know, there's people that are live streaming and stuff. But this is just a critical time for the church to be thinking differently. How do we continue? How do we maintain? How do we kind of think outside the box? And that's something we've been trying to think of as pastors. What can we be doing differently? How can we find ways to still connect and meet? So I just would ask you guys, please pray and, and brainstorm with us and give us your ideas. You know, we're thinking of some things like David and I talked about having just a day at the church here where we come in on one day and have just a, a hangout day where we have some coffee and some snacks, and we're just here all day, and whoever wants to come and join us can. We're just trying to figure out ways. I know there's weekly ministries that are still going on. I would encourage you to take advantage of those. There's some home groups meeting, there's some that aren't, and we'd love to see as many of these come back as possible. Of course, we want to do this safely and smartly because, you know, the, the, the level of risk that the church has right now, you know, depending on who you are and what you've got going on in your life matters. We want to be great, you know, full of grace about that and think about that, but we don't want to forsake the gathering and, and the encouragement. And there's so many people right now that I feel like have slipped through the cracks and we're worried about that. We're concerned about those people. And so um, this is a time we need to band together more than ever as God's people. And so if you're one of those people who are feeling disconnected, I just encourage you to press in more, find ways to do that, start looking for ways to connect, reach out, call people, um, pray for people. Let's start using our gifts in each other's lives in a way that really builds up the body of Christ again. So that's my little PSA before I get into the text this morning. But all right, here we go. First uh, Peter is very timely for our church today. As we, as we looked at what we wanted to do next, this is one of those books we looked at and thought, wow, this is going to be meaningful, just like all of God's word is. But, but this especially seems relevant. Uh, you've been used to, like we've been going through the book of Acts, and so there have been whole you know, giant narratives that I've been doing in, at once, you know, like a whole chapter in one Sunday. Today we're doing two verses. So, you know, hang in there. We're going we're gonna to get through this if we really try, but that's pretty good. I'm looking forward to just doing two verses instead of 30. So the, the text we're looking at right now is First uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, which says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, 
to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May God, or excuse me, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, at first glance, this just looks like a typical opening to a letter, you know, in the New Testament. Like, okay, yeah, they just got through the pleasantries. But this is just packed full of theology and good stuff. First question we need to answer, okay, uh, is who wrote the letter? Anybody? God, you guys are like Bible scholars. I knew you guys would get this one, and I'm proud of you for it. Peter. Yeah, it's right there in the first verse. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. All credible Bible scholars believe this is Peter the apostle, not, not somebody else. Now, on one hand, the apostle Peter needs no introduction, right? We know this guy. Uh, the good, the bad, and the embarrassingly ugly. You know, Peter is one of those guys that you kind of just think, you know, what, I mean, what comes to mind when you think of Peter? He's the guy that would, would charge ahead into the water, you know? Uh, his, his life motto seemed to be like, ready, fire, aim. That was Peter, right? Uh, put your foot in your mouth, you know, lop an ear off, ask questions later. He was just, it's Peter, right? And it's important for us to remember that this is the guy who's writing this book. Because if you're like me, when you're reading a New Testament book, you're thinking, okay, this is the apostle Peter. You know, he, he doesn't know what it's like to be me. Um, you know, he's writing these things like, you're a super Christian. I'm just like a mediocre average Joe. Peter was a mess like us at times, right? I mean, let's think about who's writing this and, and why this book, why he, what he wrote meant so much. It meant so much because it meant so much to him personally. The stuff he's writing meant as much to him as to anybody else. Peter was a coward. He was a failure. He was a denier. He was a disappointment. And yet, he was chosen by Jesus to be one of his best friends. Not cool. I mean, like out of all the guys he could have picked, he wanted Peter on his team. That encourages me. Um, this flawed man, now filled with the Holy Spirit, would go on to do great things, including preaching a sermon where over 3,000 people were saved. He would become a founding father of the church, and eventually he would die for his faith in, in his Lord. To the point where when, when they went to crucify Peter, uh, tradition tells us that he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified in the same way my Lord was, so please crucify me upside down on the cross. And they did. Completely different guy than, than where he started. But Peter understood failure. He understood sorrow. He understood suffering. And, and he understood God's sustaining grace to endure all of it. It's one thing to have somebody tell you, you know, buck up, and, and you, know, you can get through this when they, when they have no idea what you're going through. But, but it's something else quite different when somebody is, is telling you this, that they've been through this as well, and they know exactly what, what you're feeling like. These are the truths that, that got him through, and he's sharing them now with the church. So the second question is, who is Peter writing to? Well, verse 1 tells us it's to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And then he names off a bunch of hard-to-pronounce cities. Uh, he, he basically um, talks about this, this idea of the dispersion. And the dispersion normally refers to Jewish people, not, not Jewish Christians, but Jewish people who were displaced from their homeland. So when, when in the New Testament, when you talk about the diaspora or the dispersion, that's who it's referring to. So it's kind of interesting that Peter uses this terminology right now because he's applying it to Christians who are now God's people and who have been displaced from their homes. Now, certainly this would have included Jewish 
Christians, but it definitely included Gentile Christians. Most of the people that in, in the area that he's writing to, these were churches Paul got going during his missionary journeys filled with Gentiles. So, so it's both, both of these people who were now part of the same churches. It's believed he wrote this letter between AD 60 and 65, probably closer to 64, 65 if, um, is what I understand. It was described by a guy named Silvanus um, and then distributed out to be read in the various churches throughout Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. It's kind of um, interesting to think about like today, if we wanted to get something like this done, you know, we would use the internet, right? We would use, we would send an email out, blast out, you know, to the, you know, a group email, or we do like a, you know, the apostle Peter would do like a live video, you know, Hey church is the apostle Peter here. Just wanted you guys to know, you know, he blasted that on YouTube for everybody. That's great. Isn't it handy? But back in, back in the day, they had to use Sylvanus to get this done. So shout out to Sylvanus. Thank you for, you know, I don't know how many of these he had to write and send out, but praise God for Sylvanus. Well, why is Peter writing this? God's people have always been a misunderstood minority. They've always been seen as the odd ones. And they've always faced hostility from those who are not God's people because of the fact that they're called to live differently. And so Peter's writing this to, to a group of Christians who have been feeling alienated and who are beginning to experience the persecution that comes to a person who aligns themselves with Jesus and with the teachings of the Bible. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> it should. Much of what Peter writes about is stuff we can relate to. He's going to talk about governments discriminating against Christians because of their beliefs. He's going to talk about employers who, who treat their employees differently because they're Christians. He's going to talk about unbelieving spouses that reject their spouse because they are following Christ. There's a kind of a general ridicule and mockery that Christians have always experienced. We've kind of come to, a, that's been normal but there's another level of persecution that uh, those Peter wrote to were, were about to experience. It, it wasn't full blown yet, but it was starting. And, and Peter really wants them to be prepared for it so that when it does come, they're not just totally you know, washed away because of it. This is a time when Nero was, was in, in charge. And, uh, and even though he hasn't you know, completely started this whole state-sponsored persecution against followers of Christ, it was coming. And it was coming uh, in an unbelievable way. It's much different than what we're experiencing right now because the, it's persecution that involved fire and lions. And, and, and I just want you to just let that sink in for a minute. Fire and lions. This is what the church was about to start to face. Unbelievable persecution because of their alignment with Christ. Peter wants them to know that there is a cost to following Jesus, but the reward is so much higher. You know, it's interesting how persecution has a way of either driving people further into the church or further away from it. What if the cost to follow Jesus went up right now? And your level of comfort in the world went down. And what if the cultural acceptance of being known as a Christian disappeared? Would you still follow Christ? Would you still need him? We're beginning to see this right now in the American church where there has been very little cost in calling yourself a Christian. And we're beginning to see that change. 
And as the cost increases, we're seeing the effects of it. We're seeing kind of a winnowing effect, if you will. And, and on one hand, it's, it's kind of heartbreaking and discouraging. And on the other hand, it's actually kind of helpful because you're, you're, you're starting to see this parsing of, of those who have called themselves Christians and, and maybe weren't. I don't know what to make of it exactly, but it is a, a really weird time when you're seeing just, and it's not just here. I mean, we're seeing, you know, the guys I'm talking to are experiencing the same stuff. People are dropping off. Peter's aware of this phenomenon because he's seen it firsthand. Can you think about Peter, you know, when Jesus would, would preach a sermon sometimes, people would be like, all right, we're out, you know, he, you know, he would preach something really hard and difficult, and then they would just be like, yeah, we're not following him anymore, and they would just walk away. Peter knows what this looks like, so he's trying to push these guys, these Christians, closer to their Savior and closer to each other so that they can get through it. Imagine the encouragement that church would have felt when, you know, somebody, hey guys, we got a letter from Peter. The apostle Peter wrote a letter. We got it. You know, can you imagine that day? That'd be a good day, wouldn't it? Well, hey, it's, the, it's today, guys. The apostle Peter wrote a letter, guys, and we get to read it. So woohoo. You know, this same letter continues to encourage the church today. And it's a reminder, God has seen to it that we have it so that we can know the same things they needed to know. And we can get through a difficult time and we can take courage and we can trust him through all of this. So that's the who and the why. And now we're going to dig into the what. The what does he have to say to the church? First thing he wants Christians to know is that they are elect exiles or chosen exiles. And that sounds kind of bittersweet, doesn't it? I really like the chosen part. Like I'm chosen. I like that. That sounds good. God chose me. Now, the exile part, I don't like the sound of that much. It's like, what was that last part? You know, exile? Hmm? What is an exile? Someone who's been banished or displaced from country or home. They no longer have a permanent residence. Other words for exile are stranger, sojourner, or alien. Now, most of these Christians still had homes, and they still lived in their homeland, and yet Peter calls them exiles. This is reality if you're a Christian. This used to be your home, but no longer is. You used to belong to this world, but you no longer do. One of the defining marks of an exile is they know that they're not at home in the place where they are. If you've ever visited a foreign country, this, this comes, you know, I'm sure when you go to Africa, you know, the first time or wherever you happen to go to, you feel pretty weird. I mean, the, the food, the language, the culture, the customs, all of this stuff, just, you're just, you feel completely out of place. Like, what am I doing here? That's what an exile feels like. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you feel like an exile right now? It's a good question to ponder. Do I feel like an exile? Do I feel like a stranger in a strange land? Or do I feel right at home? It's an interesting thing to think about. I've been thinking about it all week. It's kind of bothersome. <laughs> it's like, get away, pesky persecution or you know, conviction. You know, there, there are times when I have to be honest and say I feel really comfortable here. And there are times when I feel like a square peg in a round hole. And I, there's an old quote by C.S. Lewis that I've always loved. He says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy... The only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. <laughs> and that resonates with me because it's like at the end of the day, it's like, yeah, nothing here works. Nothing here satisfies me. Nothing here just quenches 
you know, or scratches that itch or whatever. I don't feel like I fit in here most of the time. And I never really have, if I'm honest. And I think this is why. I was made for a different place. That doesn't mean I'm not supposed to be here, but it, but it, it helps kind of make sense a little bit of, of what I'm feeling. And that doesn't mean we don't enjoy the things that we, that we have here to enjoy. I mean, God's given us so much good things to enjoy as far as, think about the relationships we get to enjoy, the nature that we get to enjoy, the food. Yes, the food we get to enjoy, the music. You knew I was going there, right? Somehow it always ends up with the food with me, I know. Bacon. We get to enjoy so many good things from the hand of God. And yet, they're just glimpses of what we eventually will really, you know, that's the reality of what's coming. They're glimpses of those things. So it's okay to enjoy those things. We just don't want to be, remember the people of Egypt? The Israel, not the people of Egypt, but the, but the people of God in Egypt? Remember they, when they left, they, they, they left and they were now exiles. They were, but what did they do the whole time? They, they sit there and like, ah, oh, we sure missed that place. I wish we could be there. And it's like, what are you talking about? We, you know, you can convince yourself that this place is great. And, and it's kind of like, I want to say, guys, what did you have there exactly? You were slaves. You were treated horribly. Your leader was a stinking tyrant, basically Satan incarnate. And you want to go back? You want to stick around here for a while? You want to put down roots? And, you know, no, you don't want to do that. So the question then is how is a Christian who is a sojourner supposed to live here? And, and the way I viewed it, there's exiles can kind of live in four different ways. And the truth is we can kind of mix in and out of these four different ways, given, you know, any, any given day of any given week. But the four ways are this, and they all start with C, so I want you guys to like be impressed a little bit, please. Combative, camouflaged, cloistered, and commissioned. So combative is the first one. Who are the combative? I think we've all kind of known Christians like this. They're just, they're, they're looking for a fight. They're ready to like overthrow the government, storm the castle, plant our flag, put down roots, you know, and the goal is kind of to make heaven on earth. And they're generally pretty angry and they're, they're always kind of looking for a fight. And there's some of that in me, if I'm honest, sometimes. I would love to see all this kind of, you know, let, let's, let's make this happen now. That's the combative. The camouflaged or like the chameleon, they're, they're the ones that just kind of just try to blend in and hope nobody sees them, right? Become part of the culture. Don't rock the boat because you don't want, you know, you don't want anything bad to happen. So you end up compromising and conforming in order to avoid confrontation and calamity. That's the, 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 the camouflaged. People of the world, Christian, will always think the people of God are strange and, and that they're outsiders. Doesn't matter what you do. You, you, can, you, know, you can run, but you can't hide, ultimately. It's like you're gonna, you're gonna be found out eventually. If you're following Christ, this isn't gonna work. You're gonna be outed as a Christian at some point if you're following Christ. Jesus said this to us in John 15, verse 19. He said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. <laughs> this is the reality of it, guys. So we can't just hide out. Some people try that, and, and, and in fact, that causes some Christians to become the next one, which is cloistered. And this is the idea of, of you know, like, like a monk in a monastery. Let's just like, I'm going to go hide out, get away from all this nonsense, and, and just kind of self-preservation is kind of the idea. Many Christians like the idea of, of exile because it means they can just seclude themselves away from everybody and everything. It's like, that's my tendency. It's like, yeah, I'll be in exile. I'll just go home, close the door and be like, good luck, everybody. I'll see you when the rapture happens or when the resurrection comes because that sounds great to me. 
what they, what they end up being is aliens who alienate. Is that what Jesus has called us to? Absolutely not. Look at his example. Jesus was in the world, but not of the world. And he told his people to be the same way. He embraced sinners. He spent time with them. He hung out with them, but he didn't embrace their sin. We can't very well take part in the Great Commission if we isolate ourselves from the people that need Jesus. And there's a big movement today, by the way, that is kind of moving towards this direction. And, and it kind of is alarming a little bit. Like, let's just get away, from the, let's get away from the baddies and let's go be together as the goodies. And it's like, well, uh, there's so many things that are just weird about that. One, that no matter where you go, guess what? There's going to be baddies there because you're one of them, ultimately. And then, I don't know, it's a weird thing. Don't choose self-preservation over self-sacrifice. Jesus modeled self-sacrifice for us. We're here for a reason, and it's to let other people know about him. And that goes to the last one, that we are the commissioned. We are people who have been appointed to a specific task, and that is to make Jesus known. That means we need to be kind of out and about in the world and, and vocal. Peter reminds Christians that, that even though they're exiles in this world, they're called to live as chosen representatives, ambassadors of a different kingdom in the midst of the people they dwell with. In his commentary on 1 Peter, Dan Doriani says, we are simultaneously exiles in this world and agents of change within it. It's kind of neat to think about, isn't it? Exiles and agents of change at the same time. Well, how does that work? Well, the main way we do this is by sharing the gospel, but there are also, also so many good things that we can be doing as Christians that help to authenticate the love of God and the, and the love of his people to the world around us. If you just look at the influence Christianity has had on the world over the years, you, you get things like hospitals and colleges and relief agencies, stuff like the Red Cross, rescue missions, orphanages, soup kitchen, kitchens, like human rights groups. A lot of these things came about because of Christians. They have distinctly Christian roots. A Christian should be marked by loving God and loving his neighbor and stand out distinctively as the light of the world. That's what Jesus told us we would be like. So as we continue through 1 Peter, we'll see that even though we're exiles and outsiders, we should live in such a way that perplexes and intrigues people at the same time. So when they, when they look at a Christian, they should be like, what? You know, what's going on there? And especially when things aren't going well for us. Not just when things are rosy and great, but especially when things aren't going well for us. That's really going to confuse them. You want to just mess with people, you know, live out your faith in, in the middle of this world as, as salt and light and just watch the world scratch their head and go, huh, that's weird. I, I might want to know more about this. Maybe I even want to know what's going on here. They're going to think we're weirdos. It's true. You know, I, <laughs> truth is we kind of are right? We're all a little quirky. We're a little weird. That's okay. We should also be the best citizens, the most loving people, the most respectful, the most kind, the most generous, the most merciful people around. We should be distinct in that way. So you are an exile, but you are a commissioned exile with a specific job of making Jesus known to a dying world. Peter not only refers to Christians as exiles, but more importantly, he wants us to know this. We are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God. This is glorious stuff. I don't know how election and foreknowledge have gotten like to be bad words in the church. Uh, people like shy away from it. You hear those words, you're like, oh no, man, this is gonna get, you know, we're gonna fight soon. And it's like, it doesn't have to be that way. These are fantastic words. These are words that meant the world to Peter. 
I mean, think about Peter. You know, God elected him and foreknew him. This is good. We're going to get into it. These words should give us great comfort. Foreknowledge is something we don't possess, right? We figure out things as we go along. Sometimes God isn't like that. He knows everything at once. And I can't even imagine what that would be like. I don't think I could, I don't think I could live that way. It'd just be like, he knows everything at once. I chose my wife, not knowing everything she had done in her past and not knowing anything about what she would be like in the future. And she did the same with me. And I clearly got the better end of the deal, right? <laughs> but I would say after 30 years, I would choose her all over again. You know, well, I would, I mean, look at her. She's fantastic. <laughs> but, but God, but God chose us knowing exactly what we had been like in the past, what we were currently like and what we would be like in the future. And he still wanted us. That blows my mind every day. You know, I cry up here a lot. This is why the gospel wrecks me because I know what I am and I know what I deserve and I know what God's done for me. And it all, it, every day, it, it floors me. There's a great Keller quote that I, I've quoted more than once and I'll do it again today. He says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. And that's what foreknowledge tells us. I am fully known and I am fully loved. God's divine knowledge not only applies to him choosing us, but it also extends to our individual circumstances, which is super important to know. It, it, it applies to what's happening in the world around us. He knows what's coming next, you guys. And he's not surprised by it. He's not freaked out. Do you understand that God knows what's going to happen on November 3rd? Right now, he knows. And he's not freaking out. I would be freaking out. I am a little bit. He's not. He not only has foreknowledge, but he also has the power to use it to perfectly work out his will. This is the part that I don't think we really get or understand. Um, I love those movies like Mission Impossible type movies where it, it, it always kind of plays out the same way where you've got, you know, the hero, he's taken on the, the evil in the world and it looks like everything is going wrong. Everything is going wrong. Couldn't go be going worse. The plan is failing. Nothing's happening right. All hope is lost. This movie's going to end terribly. And then you find out, no, the whole time he's been three steps ahead of everybody. And everything is just falling into place exactly like it's supposed to. And the hero wins the day. And I love those movies, right? Well, guys, God looks at, you know, Ethan Hunt and Jason Bourne and James Bond and just says, amateurs, you know, he's better at this. He knows it and he knows what to do with it and what's coming. And I don't know about you, but that's a pillow I can lay my head on. I don't have to worry about what's coming. He sees around the corner and he's got it figured out. So knowing that God has a purpose and a plan that's being perfectly accomplished causes me to rejoice. Not panic, not worry, not freak out. Rejoice. Knowing that God foreordained us to be elect exiles, you know, those words together, elect exiles, makes all the difference in the world because that means he's got us right where he wants us and that he hasn't 
left anything to chance, right? He hasn't forgotten about us. He knows what we're going through, even if everything around us makes us think otherwise. I love what Paul said, you know? Sometimes you wonder what he's thinking. <laughs> we do. It's true. I appreciate the honesty. Yeah. But we don't have to worry about it. He's got it. You know, and, and it just goes to, for those of you who always kind of think that your relationship with God is good as long as things are going well, and that your relationship with God is on the rocks when things aren't going well, you need to throw that away. An elect exile, according to the foreknowledge of God, doesn't have to worry about that. That's what I love about Peter. I mean, this is good stuff. Thank you. So, and then we see in verse two, it gets even better because we find out that the whole Trinity is involved in accomplishing our salvation. I don't know why, but that just makes me like even more comforted. Verse two says, according to the foreknowledge of God, the father in the sanctification of the spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, the ESV gospel transformation study Bible points out, that's a mouthful right there. It's a good, it's a good one though. Points out that we are saved by the Trinity. The father purposes the saving work for those whom he foreknows. The son accomplishes the work by his blood and the spirit applies the work to the sinner. What does it mean for you to know the lengths that God has gone to in order to secure you for his own? It means the world to me. The text tells us that God sanctified us or made us holy by the spirit so that we would become obedient to Christ. That reminds me of um, Titus 2.14, which says that God has purified for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Like just giddy to go out and do good works. You know, ooh, I can't wait to go. What good works have you got for me today, God? I'm gonna go walk in those. That's, that's the idea. Our obedience matters to God. Uh, you know, we preach grace here a lot. And, and sometimes when you preach grace, as Martin Lloyd-Jones said, you get accused of being... I don't know if antinomian is the word he used, but you basically get accused of being like, like works don't matter. The law doesn't matter. None of that stuff matters to God. That's what it sounds like when you preach free grace all the time. And we preach the gospel. Jesus did it all. You can rest in his finished work. It doesn't mean that God doesn't want your obedience. He does. He delights in it. Just like if you're, if you're a parent, you know what this is like. I love it when my kids obey, but I don't stop loving them when they don't. You know, good for them. They're older now, but they're still not obeying sometimes. Our obedience brings honor to God and it attracts others to him. So it's critical though for us to recognize the order of this. First, the spirit sanctifies us, makes us holy, and then obedience flows out of that. It's not the other way around. It's not like my obedience gets me into relationship with God. That's not it. He, he gets the relationship going and obedience is what comes out of it. It's the result of his saving work. And then we have this little phrase in here that says sprinkled with his blood. And I, I think if, you, if you've been a Christian a long time and you, you've been in the church a long time, you hear these phrases. We sang a song today, nothing but the blood. And I always think what, is it, what it would be like for a non-Christian to come in and hear us singing that or to take communion like we're going to today. The early church, you know, they, they were accused of being cannibals, which is kind of weird. Like, Dad, you wouldn't believe what these guys do. And sometimes I wonder when we think about this, what, you know, what does this sound like? And, and I, it was, it's kind of admittedly a strange phrase, isn't it? But what Peter's done here is he's invoked very Jewish language in the letter to the Christians in these churches. He's already talked about being scattered exiles. That's a very Jewish thing. He's talked about them being God's chosen people. And now he's referencing the sprinkling of blood. And this harkens back to the book of Exodus. 
uh, chapters 19 through 24, where God makes a covenant with his people. They're going to become his own people, and he's going to ratify this covenant. And he does it by sacrificing an animal. And they, they would take this, this brush thing, and they would just kind of splatter the people and the altar with this blood. And, and when, I, when I picture that, I mean, I just imagine being in that crowd. And, and you just get, you know, psh, just hit with the, the splatter of an animal's blood. It's kind of shocking, jarring, maybe offensive. Why would God instruct Moses to do this? And the answer is because our sin is shocking and offensive. We don't get that. This is meant to be like a, a slap in the face, almost a wake-up call to us to understand the seriousness of our sin. In order for sin to be dealt with, blood must be shed. And it could have been yours or mine, but God provides something else, a substitute. A life must be sacrificed for sins to be forgiven. We see this in the garden when, when, when the first sin was committed with Adam and Eve, right? They, they sin, and after they sin, their eyes are opened. They see their nakedness. They understand their shame before God. And what do they do? They go and hide. And what does God do? He has to provide coverings for them. And so an animal was killed so that they could be covered. They were laid bare before God in order for their shame to be remedied something had to die. An innocent animal so they could be covered. And of course, this is a picture of Christ, our precious Lord, whose blood had to be shed so that our sin could be forgiven and our shame covered before God. So the splattering of blood upon us is meant to be shocking. It's meant to be offensive because someone innocent had to die because of your sin. I just, wow. So when we talk about how precious is the flow that makes me white as snow, this is why we, we sing, this is why we even remember the precious body and blood of Christ. The cost for us to be forgiven is huge and this is why we remember it. This is why we sing about it. This is why we talk about it. Because this blood covering us allows God's wrath to pass over us. Just like it did in the, in, in the, in the story of um, God's people in Egypt. And it marks us as holy and as people of his new covenant. So, so yeah, it might sound a little strange, but wow, the, the, the symbolism of this is great. So this is First Peter. Peter starts out his, his letter in a way to, to establish how secure this church is, these Christians are in God's grace so that they will be prepared when hard times come. And he does it by laying out ultimately the gospel, the grace that saves us. In fact, he says, grace and peace be multiplied to you through what he said. We also need to be firmly established in these truths so that when things start to get a little wobbly, maybe in the next few weeks even, we, we're standing firm. We're not standing on anything but Jesus Christ. There's a lot that's uncertain right now, but there's a lot that's not. And that's what Peter wants us to see. We are God's own people. We are chosen by him. We are set apart and made holy by the Holy Spirit. We are purchased and atoned for by Christ's shed blood, which means we get to enjoy grace and peace and abundance. And as we'll see next time, all of this gives us a guaranteed inheritance 
and a permanent home in his perfect kingdom where we will no longer be exiles. Father, we we are grateful so much for books like this that remind us of, of so many important truths that we need to hear right now as your people. Father, I pray that each one of us here would fully rely on who you are and what you've done for us and cling to that as our only hope, Lord. We don't know what this world's gonna look like soon. We don't know what Christianity's gonna be like soon. We don't know what the church is gonna be like soon in regards to how the world's gonna treat us, but we know what you are gonna be like because you never change. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thank you that you've done so much good for us, Lord, and we see that uh, when we look at the table today and we see the sacrifice of your son on our behalf. We see how much you love us because you sent your son to die in our place and you provided for us a way to be in relationship with you and to no longer be exiles, no longer be people that are out of place, but people that have a home with you. So Lord, if there's anybody here today that that doesn't know what this is like to know you in this way, I pray that that today they would humble themselves before you, turn from their sin, turn from from whatever it is in, in this world that they're holding on to and run to you fall on their face before you and and receive you as their Lord and Savior by believing in your death, your burial, and your resurrection. So Lord, may we worship you now as we come and take communion and may we enjoy this time in Jesus' name, amen.